So, Will. Yes? Imagine that you are... I am. An exotic dancer. Not what I meant. In the city of Tampa, Florida. Okay, I have been to Tampa. You you have lived in the Tampa Bay area. Right, I lived in St. Petersburg on the other side of Tampa Bay. Right, so you know it well. So, you are dancing at a strip club in Tampa. What is your routine? What's my routine? Or your theme, at least. Yeah, I mean, when you proposed this question before we started, I guess lately I've been trying to just go with my instinct, right? Like, not overthink these questions and just go with whatever pops into my head, which is why what popped into my head, I'm just going to tell you, was uh, John Philip Sousa. Of course. But really leaning into the period. So I think that, like, it's John Philip Sousa music, but I'm also wearing, like, a large paper mache head of William McKinley. Okay. You will definitely need tearaway clothes for that one. Right. Yes, this was the plan. So, like, I think it's, I'm, like, fully dressed as, like, big McKinley and, like, wearing a suit and stuff. And I think the suit tears away to, like, sparkly Uncle Sam stuff. I'm picturing the deed in Community wearing his sister's outfit. Right. It's very similar to that. And I assume at some point we get to, like, the club remix of the Stars and Stripes Forever when it really goes down. And that's when the dancing really kicks in. Right. And I think you have to start with the McKinley speech. I think, yes, you're right. I think I start with the McKinley speech, and I think I end by staging the assassination of McKinley. I think that sounds like a great drag routine. Like, someone should play Leon Jolgosh and come up with, like, a comically large bandage around his hand and blow me away. Yeah. And I can sing Nearer My God to Thee as the curtain goes down. <laughs> yeah, I think we have now crossed the line from just a strip tease into a full-blown drag performance. There's an audience for that. And I would see it. If there was an audience for it anywhere, it would be DC. Yeah. I like how we went similar non-traditional routes, because my thought- Wait, did you choose James Garfield? I did not choose James Garfield, but I also thought of a medieval knight in plate armor. (laughs) That's going to be harder to tear away. an hour-long performance. Famously difficult to take off. (laughs) Famously requiring help to remove. So that there is a sexy squire, madrigals are playing, and, you know, piece by piece, you are revealed underneath the plate armor. It would work up a nice sweat, so by the time you're done... You would glisten. You would glisten, and then, you know, you have enough time to really get the tips. Wow. Kidda, you picture it. Just the silence that would fall over the crowd. <laughs> I mean, like, you, what you've just pitched is medieval times after dark. I sign me up <laughs> would go if medieval times had a like risque version i would be there opening night yeah i guess the question is like would it still be pepsi products isn't pepsi notorious for firing spokespeople if they get too risque i don't know is that a thing didn't they fire britney spears after she like became sexy i, I don't know mark I try to have as little as possible to do with Pepsi. I mean, fair enough. They did have all the best spokespeople. There's like a Pepsi commercial that I think has Britney Spears, Pink, and Beyonce. Um, Britney Spears definitely did do Pepsi ads. And then they also solved police brutality with Kendall Jenner. They did. You know, they did a parody of that on the last season of The Boys. Did they really? (laughs) Yeah, they just did a parody of the solving racism Pepsi ad. It's pretty funny. 
That's very funny. The Boys is a show where every once in a while I'll like describe something that happens on it to my wife and she'll be like, should I watch The Boys? And I'll be like, you are bored by action and it's just a show of people wailing on each other that occasionally stops for a really good joke. Yeah, I kind of fell off The Boys in season two because I feel like it stopped being as funny and was mostly punchy, punchy, blood, blood. Did you get to the part where a like 12-year-old makes a stop-motion Lego recreation of The Blind Side? I did not. <laughs> There's like a reference to like the kid likes to for his mom just like recreate her favorite movies and then it cuts to Lego characters in stop motion doing the blind side. I mean that's the thing is like every so often you hear stuff and it's interesting and you want to get into it and then there's just more gore. Yeah, I do love the confidence of that show announcing what it is at the beginning of the pilot as a dude run like a super fast hero runs through a person. Yeah. I just kind of lost my appetite for it at a certain point. I completely understand. I'm also enjoying that we're starting our Magic Mike episode with a discussion of the straightest TV show to ever exist. Yeah. I wouldn't say the straightest. I think it's the straightest that you and I would consider watching. That's probably true. <laughs> Cuz the thing is if we've seen it It's not the straightest show to ever exist. That's true. But Spike doesn't exist anymore. Like, that, the straight channel is gone. TV for men, no longer. All TV is for women only. I mean, that's that's what's been going on these days. I know. Uh, You should watch The Last of Us. I know. I just haven't gotten around to it. Because I'm still watching Andor is my problem. Oh, yeah. Is that, that's a weekly show, right? It's a weekly show that ended like three months ago. Oh. (laughs) Okay. I got a lot of movies to watch, man. I did finally log back into my Disney Plus account for the first time in a while, and it is to watch John Carter. (laughs) Coming up soon. (laughs) An upcoming episode. Get excited. Coming in a couple of weeks. I I can't wait to talk about John Carter with you, but we should instead talk about (laughs) a movie that I have actually seen. Yes. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This is an investigative podcast dedicated to the very least important issue facing our world. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable? Or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. We will dig in and see what's there. And this week, in honor of the forthcoming release of Magic Mike's Last Dance, we are talking about the love story of Steven Soderbergh's original 2012's Magic Mike. This is one of the most post-2008 movies I've ever seen. Extremely. I joked on our script that I was just going to refer to it as Steven Soderbergh's economic anxiety film. Yeah, I couldn't remember exactly what year this came out. And I was like, did this come out in like 2009 or 2010? 2012 still makes sense, but it's just like so post-Great Recession. Completely. Uh, You know, it's a first Obama term movie. It is. Yeah, that is a good way of describing it. No, I knew this was 2012 for an entirely different reason, which is, I remember that summer that it came out, it was the summer after my freshman year of college, and I was, like, you know, working in an office with a bunch of interns, and every girl in the office was, like, incredibly hyped for this movie. Uh, Fair enough. It was very popular. Yeah, and they also, like, heavily marketed it as, like, get your girls' night together, it's Magic Mike time. Yeah, and then they trick you into watching a ponderous film about the dark side of this world and, you know, (laughs) economic precarity. Yeah, but it's also hot and cool. But it is also hot, and there are a lot of dance scenes. 
I was reading a bunch of interviews, and because last year was the 10th anniversary, there were a bunch of retrospective stuff. But they talked about, like, really trying to strike that line where there were some people who were saying, like, let's go full Broadway. Like, let's just do, like, the get hyped strip dance club stuff. And there were other people who were like, hmm, this could be, like, a very thoughtful, dark drama. And they're like, no, we want to just kind of, like, waggle back and forth between those. I think they do a good job walking the line. Yeah, they do. You really get a nice mix of the two. And I feel like it's not, you get the sad emotional stuff, but then you also get to see a bunch of hot men dancing, like, immediately after. Right. There's almost, like, there's, like, a cabaret quality to it. Like, the movie, where you do have this, like, Magic Mike is set in the present, and it's not on the scale of cabaret, but, like, a politically salient, like, drama playing out. And then every once in a while, you're back to the club for a great sequence. Yeah. It is. It is kind of like a 2012 cabaret, almost. Yeah. But, you know, it's not Nazis, so it is a little less serious. Right, I'm, I'm happier when this one ends. Yes. This also does have a much happier ending. I love the ending of this movie. It was, like, the confidence of ending on, like, a quiet scene at a table where the camera's almost entirely a close-up on Channing Tatum. Like I said, it's just incredibly confident in a movie that you know when it's being made is going to be sold on hot guys dancing. Yeah. And to say, this is where we're going to leave it. It's a statement of purpose, but it's also, like, very cool and really grew my estimation of the movie as it was ending. Nick said, he was like, that's it? Nick felt like he wanted more. He wanted to see more of this world. But luckily, there are two movies. I was going to say, he's in luck. Two more films. I also liked the ending, you know. I didn't need much more. I mean, I know from the trailers of Last Dance that he is not going to make it as a furniture guy. I mean, of course not. Yeah. Nothing about this movie convinces me he's going to make it as a furniture no. guy. No. But I would. I w- did leave this wanting to watch the sequel. Yeah. And I yeah, I had a really good time watching this. It was my first time seeing it. Me too, yeah. 2012, my last year in the closet. So... I had to pretend like I wasn't interested in seeing Magic Mike and that I never got around to it. This was um, Avengers Amazing Spider-Man Dark Knight Rises summer for me. Very busy. Very busy. It's a big year for me. (laughs) So, yeah, I was excited to see it because, like, I knew that it was good and that it wasn't just, like, a, you know, stripper movie. But it, like, also is, which is fun. <laughs> but, it, yeah, because I was worried, like, hearing all the stuff about, you know, the, like, critical pieces, think pieces, all of that. I was like, wait, is there just not going to be that much dancing? And I was like, oh, good, there is. There is, and it's good. And it is good dancing, and they are very naked for a lot of the movie. I, very. There was a funny, uh, I think it was from Slash Film, interview from when the movie came out with all five of the Tampa Kings. And I guess McConaughey was there too. Kings of Tampa. And there was a lot of discussion there of just like acclimating to wearing the thong and like getting used to it. It can't be comfortable. Yes. And they were all talking about like, yeah, you know, we're all like standing there, like feeling kind of awkward, checking our angles to make sure nothing's visible. Meanwhile, Channing's over there just like wearing his bright red, chatting with Steven by the camera. Well, I mean, as we all know, he was very used to the outfits. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing. So, again, we're talking about Magic Mike, which is, based on his too strong a word, inspired by Channing Tatum's time as a stripper in Tampa when he was 19 years old. Yeah. And, I mean, good for him for owning it. Yeah. he It's a 
story that he wanted to make into a movie for a while. Like, he started talking about it pretty early in his career. And for a while, he was working on it with Nicholas Finding Refn. But then he left it. Channing Tatum was in a small role in Haywire, which is a Soderbergh movie, and, like, talked to Soderbergh about that and was like, hey, I'm trying to make this thing. And Soderbergh was like, oh, that's a really cool idea. This is around the same time that Steven Soderbergh kept teasing his own retirement. Yeah, we saw how that went out. When yeah, we sure. Did. So like, first he was like, "I'm retiring. I'm getting out of this." Then he was like, "I'm gonna. I'm planning for a sabbatical." And then he was like, "I'm. I, I've got a five year plan to decouple myself from the film industry." What the fuck does that mean? I don't know. It means I've still got stuff I want to do. But there's a story of like during this period where he was ostensibly semi-retired. He did a screening of one of his movies at some theater somewhere. And an audience member in a Q&A asked him, like, what would it take? Like, what movie would it take for you to come back? And he was like, the Channing Tatum stripper movie. And everyone laughed because they didn't realize he was talking about, like, an actual movie pitch. I mean, fair enough. Yeah. But around that time, Soderbergh was supposed to make Moneyball. But that had already come out before this, right? Yeah, it winds up coming out the year before this movie does. Okay. But he was supposed to make Moneyball but got fired from it because Sony didn't like his idea of doing it as a partial documentary, like with interviews with real players. I haven't seen it. Is that how it is? No, not at all. Okay. Moneyball is just a, you know, baseball drama sort of based on real events. It's a great movie. It's a Aaron Sorkin. Anytime he finds a way to write a movie where you're never like, why aren't there women in this? It's great because then you don't have Aaron Sorkin writing women. You know, that's kind of fair. (laughs) I love Sorkin, but there's a thing he can't do. And when he can find a way to not do it, the movies are great. He is an interesting person. He's a character, and he should stop directing his own movies. Yeah. There's some directors out there who could stand to just go to writing. Yeah, and I would say he is number one. Because also, like, the fun thing with Sorkin is then you get to see different directors put their spin on a Sorkin movie. Like, Steve Jobs mm-hmm. is very much the Danny Boyle Sorkin movie. The Social Network is very much the David Fincher Sorkin movie. And that's cool. Uh, But anyway, so eventually Channing Tatum, he is working with Reed Carolyn on putting together a screenplay. Carolyn had not yet had a screenplay produced, but was like a working writer in Hollywood. And the original version of the movie really just focused on like the 19-year-old, which is the role Channing Tatum was in, in real life. And when Soderbergh got attached after being fired off Moneyball... He came on and brought the idea of like, oh, well, let's also have this older mentor character and kind of split the movie between the two of them. Mm -hmm. Which I think is the key to making the movie not a Stone Cold Bummer. Yeah. I think having the three layers of like different personalities allows it to bounce between them and be more fun. Yeah. I can easily see if it's all Alex Pettifer's character or all Channing Tatum's character, it would, either case, it would be much more depressing. Yes. Because if it were all Alex Pettifer, it would just be about this guy's descent into, like, drugs and bad decisions. Yeah. And if it were all Channing Tatum, it would just be about him, like, constantly running into these brick walls where he, like, shows up to try to get a small business loan and wants to, like, pay in cash for the real estate. Then can you imagine it all... Like, either one and then their relationship to Dallas. I like, mean, that would also be more would be of a bummer. Hard, hard to watch. Yeah, Dallas is great. Matthew McConaughey in this movie. He's very good. It's like, his head isn't in the clouds. His head is, like, on Jupiter. The babies in rattlesnake diapers line 
is such a perfect image for Matthew McConaughey in general of like if he were to have kids. He just the whole time, every time he's saying something, you're like, I can't tell if this is genius or if it's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. It's one of my favorite Matthew McConaughey performances. I can't say my favorite because of 2019 Serenity. Of course. <laughs> Are you saying Serenity is your favorite? Yeah, of course. It's his best performance he's ever given. We, we gotta just do it on the podcast. Okay, I'm just adding it to the schedule. If we were the kind of show that did live shows, Serenity 2019 would be our live show. It had. It would have to be. Yeah. Because that's the only way to make people see it. The real question is, who do we force to watch Serenity with us? That's the problem. Really, it's, it's an embarrassment of riches. There are too many people we should force to watch it with us. Maybe that's our first group episode. We just have ten guests all yelling at us for forcing them to watch Serenity. I mean, that sounds great to me. But this, we should note, is like the cresting point of the reconnaissance. This is his, like, dramatic moment. Yeah. He gets the what Oscar was the next year for Dallas Buyers Club. Interstellar's 2014. We'll talk about that in like a month. Yeah. 2013, he gets the Oscar for Dallas Buyers Club. And then this was kind of like a bridge almost, where it's still a silly performance, but shows his acting chops. Yeah, especially when you think about him like coming out of like the junk rom-coms that he's in in the 2000s. The How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, the Ghosts of Girlfriends Past. He's in that, right? <laughs> yeah, I think so. God, that was awful. We watched that movie. I can't swear to who the lead is. I know for a while, Ben Affleck was attached to it. Oh, wait. is that the, Was that one actually Dane Cook? No, it was Matthew McConaughey. Which Didn't we watch one with Dane Cook? I don't think so. Like, I don't think I've ever seen a Dane Cook movie. Okay, maybe not. Oh, maybe he's in it as like a friend. Mm, could be. Not showing up on his Wikipedia page, but he could be in there. No. Did you know Dane Cook is the lead of Disney's Planes? I did not. Yeah, he plays Dusty Crophopper. I mean, that uh, movie where you get money and no one will ever know. Yeah, but McConaughey, like, this is this period where he's making this transition out of these junk rom-coms into more interesting work, and Magic Mike does a lot to establish the legitimacy of it where it's like oh he can still do like his weird thing throwing back to dazed and confused but it's really good and he did get a lot of like awards attention for it he won best supporting actor from the indie spirit awards the new york film critics circle the national society of film critics like he was definitely in contention for an oscar nomination for this which is fair enough because he is very good in this yeah i almost wonder if like if he had been nominated this year he might have won Because 2012 was this weird year where every supporting actor nominee had already won. I don't know. I don't know if this is a winning performance, though. I don't know, but I think it's a weak slate that year. It's Christoph Waltz wins for Django Unchained. The others are, like, De Niro in Silver Linings Playbook, Alan Arkin in Argo, Tommy Lee Jones in Lincoln, who is my winner. (laughs) Who's the other one? Oh, and the other is Philip Seymour Hoffman for The Master. Ah, that's the, like, one people think should have won. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I am Tommy Lee Jones in Lincoln. But, yeah, most people would probably say should be Philip Seymour Hoffman in The Master. I just think that, yeah, I wonder I wonder what the fifth slot was there that he would have been in contention for. Like, on paper, I would say it's De Niro or Arkin. But Silver Linings Playbook was so strong with the acting branch. Mm-hmm. They got all those nominations. And Arkin always felt like kind of a weak nominee, except Argo wins Best Picture. <laughs> I still have not seen Argo. It's all right. I don't know. I, I think... 
I haven't seen enough of those movies recently to really judge, but I can kind of get why he didn't get the. It doesn't feel like a major snub. No, I mean that's a that's a tough one to crack, and I do think I think Arkin is probably the fifth in that list. Yeah, who basically basically gets the nomination for saying the movie's catchphrase. <laughs> Fair enough. I think more awards should be given for best title drop specifically. I think more awards should be given for an Argo style Argo style title drop. You know, you get a supporting actor nomination for saying like the power of the dog yourself. Oh yeah. Yeah, I'm just thinking about I feel like the best title drops can come from TV though. So maybe that's a Golden Globe award and everyone's in contention. I mean, if you're saying the Golden Globes should have sillier categories, I'm with you. Yes. Lean into the fact that your show is a joke. I think the Golden Globes really is the venue for giving out the best delivery of the line municipal Darwinism every year, as we've proposed many times. Here's what should happen. If we're going to have a Golden Globes, they should adopt a bunch of the MTV Movie Award categories. We barely had a Golden Globes this year. I heard it was a pretty good show. But it was on a Tuesday. Yeah, like, I don't know anyone that watched it. I think we were recording because we forgot the Golden Globes were happening. Yeah, because it really did not make an impression. But, like, if they had a Golden Globe for Best Kiss, that would be good. If they had a Golden Globe for, like, Best Shirtless Performance, that would be good. Well, if they had that, I know what movie would have won that year. Well, Channing Tatum was nominated for Best Shirtless Performance at the MTV Movie Awards. Oh my god. Of course he was. Who else could it be? Well, he lost. Wait, who won? Well, this was the MTV Movie Awards in a year that a Twilight movie came out. Oh, okay. So... And they always swept. Yeah. In this case, it was Taylor Lautner for Breaking Dawn Part 2. My god, of course. The other nominees were Channing Tatum and Magic Mike, Christian Bale in The Dark Knight Rises, which is hilarious because all of his shirtless stuff in that movie is like, I'm a broken man. Yeah, I don't... Isn't that, like, the most depressing parts of the movie? Yes. Similarly, Daniel Craig in Skyfall. Oh, my God. And number five, Seth MacFarlane in Ted. Isn't he the voice of Ted? Are they counting Ted as the shirtless? I I guess they are counting Ted. That sounds exactly like something they would do. Yeah. Best shirtless performance was only given out for three years. Taylor Lautner won it. This was the first year. And then the other two years were both Zac Efron. Good for him, honestly. Yeah. That's fine. In three years of Best Shirtless Performance, only two women were ever nominated. Do they have to be, like, fully shirtless? I don't know. Jennifer Aniston for We're the Millers and Kate Upton for The Other Woman. The Other Woman is maybe a movie we should do. I bet it's really (laughs) dumb. What's The Other Woman? The Other Woman is Nikolai Koster-Waldau is a (laughs) two-timing dirtbag who has been taking advantage of Kate Upton, Leslie Mann, and Cameron Diaz. Oh, I think I remember that. Yeah. Oh my god. I'm looking at the... It looks like they nominated Ted, the teddy bear, for best shirtless performance. Wow. That is something. That is truly something. Ted opened the same weekend as Magic Mike, which feels like a real battle of the sexes moment. Yeah, it kind of does. It is like men versus women at the box office. One has much more to say than the other. Yes, but Ted did win the box office that weekend. Oh, I'm sure. But this movie, I was shocked at how much money it made. Yeah, it did well. It made $39 million in its opening weekend, $113 million overall in the U.S. and Canada, and another 56 internationally. Honestly, it's that 56 international feels low to me. 
Yeah, that's kind of, that's the most surprising part. And I know, like, 2012, it's only 10 years ago, but, like, that was a pretty different time in terms of, like, Chinese and Indian box office. But still, like, that feels low to me. This is a dance movie. It should translate. I guess it's a little risque for some of the international box office. Oh, that's probably true. There was a bunch of interesting box office data about this, about how, like, Magic Mike overperformed expectations in, like, St. Louis and Nashville. It did 75% over expectations in Kansas City, but then underperformed in New York and L.A. That doesn't really surprise me. (laughs) It's those moms. It's, like, their chance to party. And they really did market it that way. Like, if you watch the first trailer for this movie, it is, like, come see this romance that's also sexy. This movie came out the same year that the novel Fifty Shades of Grey did. So it was, like, high time for, like, moms feeling sexy. Which I say in a good way. Yeah. I mean, they deserve better than Fifty Shades of Grey. Right. But, like, we were really having a cultural moment of, like, did you know middle-aged women can get turned on? Yeah, it's when America learned that women can be horny past the age of 30. So it's, like, kind of this movie's good fortune that it happened to come out in that moment. I would say it contributed to the Absolutely, realization. Like, Fifty Shades Prime of the Pump. It did. My mom was in a book club at that time. Was your mom in the film Book Club? Is is Candace Bergen playing her? Ugh, I wish. Um, no. But one of the women chose Fifty Shades, and I could hear my mom just groaning with disgust at how bad <laughs> the writing was as she's reading it. Now, of course, women were not the only people targeted by the marketing of this movie. That is who they originally planned to target. But somewhere along the way, they realized that gay men were also interested in this. Yeah, I mean, they were. So Warner Brothers then hired an ad agency that, like, specialized in targeting gay audiences. And were like, help us do this. So they, like, cut a new trailer that, like, focused a lot more on the dance stuff. And less on the, like, Cody Horn sort of romance. Yeah. And they also had Magic Mike floats at Pride Parades in six different cities. Okay, I don't know how I feel about that. (laughs) But that is a new spin on corporate pride. Yeah, it really is. I mean, if... I'm just checking when Matt Bomer came out, because I feel like it was a missed opportunity to not have him be gay in the movie. Yeah, I did notice that the show in the movie is very specifically targeted at women. It is. I don't think there was a lot of... I mean, it's still Florida. You're saying you don't think there was a large gay club scene in Central Florida in the late 90s when Channing Tatum was yeah. doing this? <laughs> yeah. I think he was inspired... Like, his uh, experience is more closely related to this movie. Yeah, I think so. I think one of my biggest... I mean, it's not a huge fault, but... I was very interested in the other dancers, but I felt like they didn't have enough to do. Yeah, which is not to say, like, I think this movie is smartly small in its scope, right? Like, I can look at a lot of individual things and say, like, I could have gotten more dances. I could have spent more time with the relationships outside that. I could have spent more time with the other dancers. But I also think that, like, you know, the movie's under two hours and that's a good thing for it. I know. It's like, I don't need it to be longer. So, I get it. I just, I guess they made the characters too intriguing, almost. Yeah. I did read a funny quote from Joe Manganiello from a 10-year anniversary thing that The Ringer did last year, where he was saying, when he first heard about, like, the male stripper movie, he said, absolutely not. I am a classically trained actor, and I take my shirt off so much on True Blood that people think it's all I can do. Oh, Joe Manganiello. 
And basically, the thing that comes up over and over again with the people who were cast, besides Channing Tatum, obviously, who was helping to create the movie, is that they were all like, I don't know about this. And then they heard Soderbergh was doing it, and they were like, fine, I'll do it. I mean, I did read it's one of two films that Matthew McConaughey has accepted over the phone. The story behind that is really funny, because Soderbergh was like, Dallas has got to be McConaughey. Like, called the agent, say, like, we want him for this, like, we are making an offer here. And McConaughey was supposed to, like, call Soderbergh back and talk it over. And the day and time that were set up for it came and went, and McConaughey never called. And then the next day, Soderbergh got a call from McConaughey where he said, Yeah, I know I was supposed to call you at 11 o'clock, but I don't know what day I was supposed to call you at 11 (laughs) o'clock. Of course. Which is pretty funny. Yeah, that tracks. I did see the detail that McConaughey got uh, regular waxings at an L.A. strip mall for this role. (laughs) Great. (laughs) I feel like he probably could have afforded at-home waxing. So good for him for supporting a local business. (laughs) That's right. Matthew McConaughey, in these times of economic distress, really wants to support American businesses. Remember when Matthew McConaughey was talking like he was going to run for governor of Texas? Oh my god, I forgot about that. Yeah, and then he just didn't. I think he made the smart decision. Yeah, I mean, he would have lost to Greg Abbott. Yeah, which, ugh. He's such a weird guy. He's such a weird guy. He is rumored to be one of the people looking at buying the Washington Commanders. He is a lifelong DC football fan. I could get on board with that. I think it would be fun to have him in town pretty regularly. I think it would be pretty funny to have him as the owner. Yeah. Can't get worse. Bring some flair. Well, yeah, sure. Can't be worse. I... I'm curious in all of your readings, I've heard rumors that Alex Pettifer is, like, one of the worst people to work with in Hollywood. Um, I did not specifically run across that, but I wouldn't be astonished. <laughs> yeah. McConaughey, on the other hand, you know what? We're talking about McConaughey. You know what I love about him with this movie? He didn't have a dance scene in the script, and he requested one. Really? Yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, he probably asked them to write in his song, too. Oh, He, his guitar coach, and the music supervisor co-wrote the song together in three hours. It sounds like it. (laughs) Yeah, but in a good way. Yeah, I mean, it's exactly It sounds like a song that that character would write. I know, it works perfectly for the movie, but it also sounds like a song written in three hours. Yeah, so he requested that, wanted to do it. It sounds like a really fun shoot. Channing Tatum talked about how, like, look, normally when you're making a movie... You shoot your scenes, and then you go home. But he's like, on this movie, like, any time that stuff was being shot in the club, everyone just hangs out the whole time. Because you want to watch other people doing their scenes. Yeah. Just, what a great time it was. And, like, there's some cool stuff in there where, like, the choreographer, Allison Falk, was like, look, Channing, you know how to do this. So his last dance, the, like, dubstep thing where he's, like, hanging from the pole, is, like, fully improvised by Channing Tatum. Funnier... Alex Pettifer's first dance did not have any planned choreo, and he didn't know what the song was going to be. They really captured the, like, feeling of being forced onto stage in that moment. The moment where he, like, shuffles on stage and, like, awkwardly takes off his sneakers is incredibly funny. It was so good. I just remembered the penis pump in the corner Uh of that scene. And that was so funny. I love that Joe Mangello was complaining, and then got that role, too. He's great in it. You know, And in that same retrospective, he was like, when I die, I want the in memoriam at the Academy Awards to just show me as the golden statue. Hey, you know what? He is really hot. Yeah. Joe Manganiello is a guy who 
I haven't seen a lot of, but it'll always be a little funny to me because he was cast as Deathstroke, the mercenary in the Ben Affleck Batman movie that never got made, but he does appear in the post-credits scene of the Joss Whedon Justice League cut, teasing a movie that never got made. So because I don't know True Blood, like, to me, Joe Manganiello is mostly famous for not being in a movie. I mostly know him, not gonna lie, as Sofia Vergara's husband. I didn't know that! They've been married since 2015. Wow! And I always kind of respect the man who is a wife guy. Yeah. I don't know how he feels about it, but... Wait, what? Over the years, Manginello has worked extensively with Dungeons and Dragons as a writer, official ambassador, and paid consultant. I didn't know that. That is hilarious. It does kind of explain. He did an episode of Mythic Quest on the most recent season that is clearly playing on that. But it looks like he's not in the new movie. Which Which is is dumb. He should be. He should be. And he should take his shirt off. He's a good looking dude. He's directing an untitled Dungeons and Dragons documentary. He just seems like a great guy. I want to meet this man. (laughs) Yeah. The Mythic Quest episode, the joke is that, like, they want to make a Mythic Quest movie, and he wants to be the lead in it. But they are just, like, constantly bungling this meeting, and so he's trying to be an enthusiastic nerd, and they just do not know how to engage with him. Ugh. Oh, my God. Wait. I looked at Wikipedia pages for two of the actors, and they both studied at the David Lynch Center for Transcendental Meditation. (laughs) I mean, checks out, right? Why not? (laughs) Completely checks out. This movie was great. This movie's great. Magic Mike is good. I'm really excited to see Last Dance in theaters. I'm really excited to watch XXL soon. Well, that's the thing. So that I can watch it in theaters. We're recording eight days before the new movie comes out. So I got to get Double XL in in the next week. I know. And I mean, seeing Salma Hayek dance is going to be great. It's going to be great. She's so hot. And the fact that, you know, this episode's coming out in like a couple of days. So this is a PSA for listeners who are listening on time. The fact that Magic Mike's Last Dance is coming out in theaters and that same weekend Titanic is being re-released. It's like a huge weekend for me. Huge weekend for hot men. Yeah. I'm so excited to see Titanic. Should we dive into this romance though? We probably should. Yeah, we've got we've got some kings of Tampa to talk about. I like how you're not giving them the full name. The Cock Kings of Tampa? Right. It, it's because I couldn't remember. Ah, okay. I thought you were it's trying to be respectful. It's not because I didn't want to. No, I, I have great respect for their title. The Cock Kings of Tampa is very fun to say. It was fun for me watching this to, like, try to figure out when they were shooting in Florida. Where, like, there were some things that I very much recognized from my time living in St. Petersburg. And then there were other times where they're on a beach, and I'm like, those are mountains in the background. Yeah. The beaches looked pretty California. Yeah, again, there were mountains in the background. I don't know. Uh, isn't Florida famous for their rolling hills and tall mountains? Uh, you know, purple fruited plains. Yeah. Um. I before we dive in, I just want to say I watched this movie on Blu-ray. Uh, I was introduced with a commercial for the concept of Blu-ray, which is always funny when you're already watching one. This one told me that Blu-ray is sharper than steel. A thing that it announced. Hmm. Don't know what that means. It then played me just one trailer, and it was the Cloud Atlas trailer. So like I said, a great start to a great movie. I miss seeing the ads for Blu-ray. They're so funny. 
I liked the Disney one where it was like a super cut of Disney characters saying the word blue. So you have like. Oh my like, god, I forgot about that the, one. Stitch. Finding Nemo going, the big blue. Or in uh, Beauty and the Beast going, sacre blue. Like it didn't matter if it was the color blue, it just had to sound like blue. That's a good one. I think one of the best Disney commercials of all time was Stitch pulling up next to Aladdin and Jasmine on the magic carpet and stealing Jasmine. Yeah, I mean, that was the best one, but they did the whole run of those, right? There was the Beauty and the Beast one, too, where it's the title oh, song, yeah. and it pans up to the ceiling, and Stitch is crawling on the ceiling. I should rewatch Lilo and Stitch. There was a huge retrospective piece in Vulture last year, talking about the production of that movie. That was really good. I really liked it as a kid. I saw it in theaters twice, but I don't know that I've ever seen it since. I think I rewatched it in high school one time, but not since. Anyway, romance. <laughs> So every week we break down a movie's romance into five points to help us walk through what's going on. And that's all we cared about. So besides that, we're like, ah, you know, Channing Tatum, he plays this guy. He's trying to get a furniture business going. Every time you see a page of his furniture catalog, you're like, the next one could be the wagon wheel table from When Harry Met Sally. But the movie, I don't know. What do you think of his furniture? The only piece that looked good was the one made with the turbine in his house. That's the thing. I think most of his furniture is bad. The rest of it was bad, and I don't know if it was intentional or not. Right. Is he supposed to be, like, so avant-garde that I just don't get it, or is it bad? I think it's bad. I think it's bad, but I can't tell if the movie wants you to think it's bad. Yeah. Hard to say. So, like, he is a struggling would-be businessman. It is very funny when he shows up at the bank wearing his suit and his little glasses. Those glasses were horrifying to look at and so funny. But he wants to pay in cash. Like, it's very sweet. George Bailey would have given him the money. But we're not doing that. We're just talking about about romance. We only care about romance. That's why we're 48 minutes into this episode and just talking about it now. (laughs) Well, we had to talk about the boys and Deathstroke. (laughs) Of course. The boys, extremely related. And, And characters from DCEU movies that didn't get made. Right. Okay. So, Will, I hate to break it to you, I have a point zero for this movie, but it's very quick. Okay, is your point zero Olivia Munn? Because I find her fascinating. No, she doesn't really come up that much. My point zero is just the moment where I said, oh, they're siblings, about <laughs> Adam and, oh, what's her name? I forgot the main girl's name. Oops. I don't know, Cody Horn. She's Alan Horn's daughter. Yeah, Cody Horn um, playing Brooke. Sure. So this is a very Fiona point zero in that it's just a character relationship, right? We could dispense with it in two seconds and not need it to be a point. Yeah, but it's been so long since we've had one. And I really, I feel that their sibling relationship was not written by someone who's had a sibling. It felt weird at the beginning. I just hate when siblings call each other bro or sis. I mean, I find it very funny. Yeah, to establish the relationship. And then, I don't know. I think just because they were a man and a woman living together and this is a movie, I kind of assumed that they were together and then read into that until I realized they were siblings. I mean, we had previously been told he was sleeping on his sister's couch. Oh, I must have missed that line. Well, you should pay more attention. I try, Will, (laughs) but I don't have a good attention span. So I took a second to realize they were siblings until, of course, she called him bro. And then I said, ugh. But point one... We've met Adam at 
a construction site where he lied about having experience tiling a roof. You know what's dire about this construction job? Circling back to something else we talked about earlier. The boss harassing Adam because you are only allowed one Pepsi a day. That was really funny because they really set it up to be like, drugs or drinking on the job something really bad and then it's because he has two pepsis in his backpack right it's funny because it's a nothing thing but like the added insult is that it's pepsi it's pepsi also the fact that he gets fired over it yeah so after the pepsi incident (laughs) and he's fired mike offers to drive him home because adam's car just doesn't turn on yeah so like they're chatting they're getting to know each other a little bit up on the roof. And I guess, well, they don't, he doesn't take Adam home until after the first night at the club. Because that's when he has the breakfast conversation with Cody. Oh, yeah, he does have the whole, oh, right. So they spend a whole time going around. Mike, yeah. like. I was just, can I say, I was so distracted by the fact that they never address what happened to his car. The one that died. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> Is it still at that construction site? Uh, I guess so. No, I guess he got it, right? Because he gets a new car eventually and presumably drove himself sometime in the interim. No, because also Mike drives him everywhere because he offers to pay him for gas. That's true. Yeah, I guess he just leaves it there. Yeah, so Mike takes him out. Well, no, actually, Mike leaves him and then they meet up again at night. Yeah. He meets Mike walking down the street. I think he like, drops him off, but he doesn't see Brooke yet. Yeah, and, and so Mike winds up like recruiting him in. That's the first night that Adam goes out on the stage and like, shuffles around to like a virgin then makes out with the birthday girl that they yes. bring to the club makes out with the birthday girl it seems like they get some sexy times on at some point unclear exactly to what extent yeah but then he gets hired to do this and then mike takes adam home yeah mike takes adam home and that's where he meets you said her name is brooke brooke you really just came down to see little brother no, I was hoping this was all a joke. It's pretty funny. You better take care of him, Mike. Okay, Mom. I'll take care of him. You should stick around, though. I spent the whole time being like, yeah, she does look like a person. She was not my favorite performance. No, I think that the sort of inscrutability of her performance kind of works to the extent that Brooke is very skeptical of this world, like she's the voice outside it. And I think her character is in an interesting space where she is trying to hold herself to a place of like not judging this world just without considering it, right? She's not trying, Mm -hmm. she's trying not to just dismiss it out of hand but also is skeptical of stuff she sees going on, you know, like her brother ultimately, like, going deep into drugs. Yeah, like, she is not immediately, you know, judgmental and shut down. She's weirded out, but she's, like, trying to be understanding. Yes, which I think is an interesting place to be, but it's not the most charismatic performance in the world. No. There's not a lot where... And we'll get into this with the believability, but I don't really see why Mike is so gravitated towards her. Not really. Yeah. Maybe it's because he knows that, like, down the road, he's going to want to make a movie inspired by his life. And she's the daughter of the head of Walt Disney Studios, who was previously the head of Warner Brothers Studios. And he's like, oh, this could help me out. I mean, that's probably not it. <laughs> um, but yeah. So- but yeah, so th- they meet, like, he goes in and he immediately launches into this, like, flirtation mode. Mm-hmm. He is very flirty with women. 
He is. And he's trying to get her to go out to breakfast with them. And her attitude basically is like, who are you? Yeah, she and has no. a pretty normal reaction. Why are you in my house? Where was my brother? <laughs> yeah, who Will are you? Will you leave? Can you please leave? Yeah, I don't need I don't need high energy strangers showing up at dawn. No, I wouldn't be that thrilled about it either. I mean, at least that night Adam's not like drugged out of his mind. Yeah. So it makes sense why she doesn't like hate him immediately. It's a plus. And so from then on, like the breakfast thing kind of becomes a running joke, right? Mm-hmm. He invites her to come to the show sometime, and when she's there, Mike runs into her and is like, "Oh no, like you can't come over here. This is the area for people who like breakfast." So like breakfast has become his like flirty access point with her. Right. And then he even talks about that and then point 2 is where he like kind of crashes a date that she's on with yes, her boyfriend. With... What's his name? Paul? Tall Paul. Yeah. And you know, I think he doesn't like breakfast too, Tall Paul. Probably not, right? Tall Paul is like he's not the most fun person in the he's world. He's the least charming person. Yes. Which really emphasizes Mike's charmingness in comparison at that date. And I guess it is worth pointing out at this point that Mike has this like situationship with, with Olivia Munn. Olivia Munn. We are introduced to Mike at the start of the movie with his naked butt and just Channing Tatum walking around at the start of his day being naked after having a threesome with Olivia Munn and another lady. She calls herself a stranger, but you can tell they actually know each other. It becomes clear that what they do is just get together occasionally for threesomes. Mhm. Where it's like they find a third and have a good time together. Yeah. And that becomes significant in point number three with right. the sandbar party. Yeah. So then on the 4th of July, Mike shows up <laughs> at their house in a Marilyn Monroe costume. Good. Cool. At 7 a.m. thing that Channing Tatum did once for a friend in real life. At 7 a.m. And then invites them both to a sandbar party, which is just sitting on a sandbar and drinking. Come on. Let's go. Sandbar party. Fourth July, nuts on your head, wake up, call us, go! Come on! Nope, 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 you were coming too, don't even try it. Um, I'm gonna get bed at 7 in the morning. Oh, 7 in the morning, I hate fun. Jesus Christ, you better have some epic plans if you are gonna turn your back on a sandbar party! This is one of those moments where you're like, it's kind of cool that these people have this nice little community. Yeah, they do have lots of friends. And this is still the window where you're like, this is, like, nicely fulfilling. and. You know, later on when Adam talks about how how much better his life has been since he started hanging out with Mike. Here on the sandbar is one of those times where you're like, yeah, I, I do see that. Like, this is a community that you could enjoy being a part of. Now, we're also getting into the window where Dallas is starting to draw Adam more into his net at the expense of Mike. Mm-hmm. And so some of the, like, economic anxiety plotline is heating up. Right. And I mean, Adam had no money. And Mike is sitting on $13,000 in small bills. Yeah. So at the party, Mike and um, Brooke, I still am forgetting her name. It feels like Anne from Arrested Development. It's not dissimilar. Mike and Brooke start uh, are sitting and talking. And then Joanna comes up and is like very clearly flirting with Brooke under the assumption that she was brought for the two of them to have a threesome with. And and Mike is like, no, no, she's not like that. Yeah, and pushes her away. Brooke is uncomfortable. Yeah, in a way, you know, she is so much a part of Mike's push for respectability, right? He is dancing and he's good at it, but he wants to be a legitimate businessman. He wants to, you know, present himself as this, like, upstanding member of the community. And 
you can see that tug here too, where like Olivia Munn is part of that sort of more devil may care lifestyle, whereas Brooke he sees as more of like this is like living seriously. Mm-hmm. This is putting like, on your little glasses. Yeah, this is him going to the bank. But after that, they do end up just talking. They bond. He, you know, gets into his emotional feelings about economic insecurity and being an entrepreneur and all of that. He's running a couple of businesses. But this is where they really seem to be growing closer. Right, but the wrinkle is that Tall Paul is sort of still in the picture, although he is moving to Orlando, which is like an hour and a half away. And we get another moment of them being friends at the... Is it like a water park? Where are they? It's a... There's go-karts there. There appears to be mini golf. It's just like a whole place. Yeah. They're at one of those like family fun centers. Yeah, that does sell beer. That does sell beer. So if you could wake up and do the one thing that make you the happiest every morning. The happiest? Yeah, money aside, you know. Money aside, I would wake up on the beach somewhere just making stuff every single day. Really? Yeah. Really? Tables and chairs? Whatever, anything. Everything. Just but custom, one-of-a-kind stuff. You know, not the knockoff stuff that you see in people's kitchens from time to time. Hey, hey. Just saying. I don't have a custom furniture maker, man. Oh, man, you do. Okay. (laughs) So are you in business? Why aren't you... (laughs) I will be as soon as as soon as the banks start making the competitive rates and loans, and I, I will. Look, I've been saving for six years. I mean, why do you think I'm doing all these stupid businesses with, with stripping? It's just I don't know. I've saved thirteen, about thirteen grand. It's gonna happen eventually. Wow, thirteen. That's a, that's, that's a lot of ones. <laughs> there were some fives in there. Oh, okay. No twenties. Yeah. Uh, you don't want to know what I have to do for twenties. You know what? I don't. You know what? Let's yeah. drink these, and I'll show you what you, I do. No, for that's 20s. that's you know? okay. You know, they're hanging, like, a few moments like that. But point four is really when we get to the fight. Where Adam has gotten into drugs, gotten into trouble, and then... Talking about Adam's descent. Yeah. This is a movie with a lot of, like, barely clothed dude dancing. By far the most homoerotic thing that happens in this movie is two dudes repeating I love you at each other while one guy squeezes the other guy's wife's boobs. Um, see, that's one of those scenes where I was interested in the other dancers. Sure. Because I was like, what's going on here? It's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. It Matt Bomer is one of the dudes, so it that also makes it more homoerotic. And then you've got just, like, pink-haired Riley Keough on the side with her pig. Yeah. Weird scene. Anytime you've got Elvis's granddaughter on screen, that's weirding things up a little bit. Yeah. Interesting moment in this film. Yeah, sure is. But so, yeah, so he's descending. So then Brooke is upset about this. And so yeah. she and Mike have fight. But I mean, the biggest thing is she comes and finds him at Mike's place. And Mike's like, he's fine. And she goes upstairs and he's very close to drowning in his own vomit to death. Yeah, that's the thing. You know, we've kind of mapped this out. You've kind of mapped this out into a a movie romance plot line. Yeah, but classic this fight, five act arc. This fight does feel earned. It Oh, it, in part because she was never on board to begin with. No, it is very earned. She has a right to be angry. He promises repeatedly to take care of him, and he doesn't. He ultimately fails at that. And he goes a couple of times to try to apologize. There's the one time where, I love where she just says, I know you're basically a good person, but... Yeah, you're basically a good person, but that's not enough. Like, look at what you did to, you know, Adam. Exactly. And there is that scene then where he, because Adam has like lost $10,000 worth of ecstasy, 
Mike to get him out of the hole pays off the debt, which is paying off like all this money that he's been saving for his furniture business. And like we were saying, like that furniture business was never going to be a success. It was never anyway. going to succeed. But it is still devastating to watch Mike yeah. when he thinks he's like about to make it, right? He's going to the bank. The show is about to move to Miami and he's got a stake in it. And just like all of that is vanishing. Right. And that moment really does bring us to point five where Mike has this realization backstage at the final show in Tampa and leaves to go be with Brooke while Adam then replaces him fully. Like Adam is now... Now the centerpiece of the show. The centerpiece of the show past Mike's influence. But Mike goes to Brooke and they talk and they have a nice moment and then... They decide to get breakfast, but she only eats breakfast from one place that won't open till 6 a.m. So they have seven hours. And like the last line of the movie is her saying, <laughs> like, oh, what are we going to do to kill seven hours till morning? I assume just like cuddle up and read poetry. Yeah, of course. Some like Shel Silverstein. Deal the Declaration of Independence. There's many options. So, Mark, after watching uh, the first installment of the Magic Mike saga, do you find the romance believable? Um... As I said, she she is not as captivating as Mike acts like she is. Yeah. Like, the only way to make it work is to sort of decide that Mike is more interested in what she represents. Yeah. And that also is not great. Yeah. And, like, I don't think people do, like, do people fall, I guess they fall in love with some, like, what a person represents. Yeah, absolutely. But, like, also, I just think that, Cody Horn is a little young for the role. Which is funny because Alex Pettifer feels, I mean, I know he's 22 playing 19, but he still looks too adult almost. Yeah. And I don't know how old she is because her age is not on Wikipedia. (laughs) But yeah, I think they needed someone a little older to fully sell this. Somebody who who more seems to be Mike's peer in a way. Yeah. She doesn't feel like a peer to him. And he needs someone who I think... You need someone who is, like, a, a established career woman to really right. carry this role, I think. And Brooke Moore feels like someone who has a job. Yeah. You know, I think this movie could have stood to use, like, a Sigourney Weaver-esque, like, that level of performance in that role. I don't know who in 2012 was, like, the 1980s Sigourney Weaver. Yeah, I don't know. Like, sexy confident but sexy not getting naked style well you think like this is the same year as jennifer lawrence and silver linings playbook i don't know if jennifer like she's too quirky yeah i don't know but also someone like the same age as channing tatum right that's the thing so i don't know also their fight is much more earned and serious to where her forgiving him that fast feels a little fast yeah i think the sort of a key to it for her is the fact that she knows he, like, kind of gives up everything. Yeah. I mean, she's also willing to... It's it's not like they're getting married. They're yeah, going to have I, sex I don't and think then they go will. on a date. So. <laughs> so moving through that stuff, number one, I'm going to give this movie, like, a six. Yeah, that feels right. Do I think they'll stay together? I don't. No. Know. No. I think especially as Adam moves to Miami, there's going to be less holding the two of them together. Yeah, I think they'll drift apart. And I think we'll find out when we watch Magic Mike XXL. I don't know this, but for some reason I suspect she ain't in it. Yeah. But, like, to be fair, like, you know, we're talking about who should be in this movie. 
this was also produced as an independent film. Like, they did not have a studio behind them when they made it. They made it, and then they sold it to Warner Brothers. Mm. Yeah, wow. $7 million budget. Yeah. So, like, they didn't have a ton of money to throw around. Right. Do you think they're dateable? I don't really think so. Eh, not really. You know, are you again, she's just a little too inscrutable. I think I used that word earlier. Yeah. And Mike... Mike is reaching for stability, but isn't actually stable No, in a way that I don't think I could hang with. Yeah, that's kind of how I feel, too. So then if you did have to pick someone in the movie to date, whom would you choose? I don't know. It's pretty tough in it this is movie. Not the easiest. Um, Honestly, I feel like Big Dick Richie seems to be the most stable of them all. I was also thinking Big Dick Richie, <laughs> who is our guy Joe Manganiello. Maybe... The birthday girl, too. Okay. She seemed fun. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to date a 21-year-old, but she is someone who on her 21st birthday is just out having fun. Yeah. So. Good for her. Good for her. Um, Obviously, don't want to date this performer or character, but I did notice in the credits, I loved this credit, that Herman the pig was played by Maynard the pig. <laughs> oh, that's so cute. Maynard, good name for a pig. Now, Will, I do actually know some about this next question but do you think this should be made into a musical okay well what do you know it is happening isn't it like isn't it in production um is it actively in production i know that is it in or i he's the reed carolyn announced that he was working on a musical um oh but you're right oh but they had magic mike live but i don't know so if that's, that's a the separate musical. thing oh, okay I feel like I heard that it was in production, but I may be making that up. So Magic Mike the Musical is a real thing. I'm on a New York Theater Guide website that lists it as tickets will be on sale soon. A prequel featuring an original story set before the events of the first film. So Magic Mike Live is a separate thing in London that is not like a proper musical with a full plot. It's more of like a stage, like dance and acrobatics show. Okay. Now, the interesting thing about Magic Mike Live is it is directed by Channing Tatum. Huh. In London, too? Isn't that where <laughs> Magic Mike, the last dance is being set, where he's directing a large live performance? You are correct. Interesting. Yeah. So Magic Mike Live, you can see now if you're in London. Magic Mike, the musical, will theoretically be on Broadway sometime. I'm interested. I think it could work. Yeah. I don't know that it's a thing that I need, just in the sense that, like, Steven Soderbergh is one of those guys where the way he uses the camera and the way he cuts between different shots, I just find enormously compelling. And so to me, losing that part of the story is losing a big part of this story. Yeah. Like I'll be interested when I watch Double XL because that's the one that he didn't do to think about another director telling these kinds of stories. Right. And then it'll be interesting to go back to Steven Soderbergh for Last Dance. It is still crazy to me that Magic Mike's Last Dance was produced as part of Soderbergh's HBO Max deal, where, like, he just got to, like, put, like, one or two movies on HBO Max a year, and Magic Mike 3 was supposed to be a straight-to-HBO Max movie last year. Why did they decide to put it in theaters? Is it part of the, like, Warner Brother or Discovery shuffle? So, like, early on in that wave of stuff, before they were, like, canceling Batgirl, they were talking about how they just, like, didn't really want to do movies debuting on HBO Max anymore because, and they're right about this, it's leaving money on the table. Mm -hmm. because if people are going to sign up for HBO Max to watch the movie, they can either go see it in theaters and pay for it, or sign up for HBO Max, like, in two months. Yeah. And they'll still get that sign-up, but you also get the box office money. Right. So a number of HBO Max movies got shifted to being theatrical releases 
Magic Mike is one. The new Evil Dead movie coming out in April is another one. And then what happened with some of the stuff that they canceled was they were like, we don't feel like this is good enough for theatrical, so we're just never going to release it. Stupid. Yes. Well, anyway, I'd be curious to see the musical, but not curious enough to pay for. Sure. And I think that's about it for a Magic Mike. Yeah, I am really glad to have watched this. What a fun movie. I know. What a good time. I'm excited to see Magic Mike XXL. Maybe someone will dance dressed as William McKinley. I doubt it. There's a chance. Next week, we will be talking about Ghost, a 90s classic I don't think either of us have seen. I have not seen Ghost, but I have seen the Community episode where Tony Hale yells about Ghost. I feel like it's going to be one of those movies where I watch it and realize how much I know about the film Ghost. It will definitely be like that. But until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts and Spotify to help other people find the show. All right, last question. What is the best piece of dating advice we got from Magic Mike? Waffles, man. Waffles are a good, good dating move. I know. I was just going to say it's all about breakfast, baby, because there's no other advice to take away. All right. Well, there you go. Until next time, I am a ginger. And I'm gay. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Even though we gotta go, there's one thing you gotta know. Ain't no matter how much you love me for sure. Ooh, I'll always love you more. Ooh, I'll always love you more than you know you got me tied to a chain. I'm just a slave to your soul, and there ain't nothing I can do about it. That's for sure. Ladies of Tampa, uh-huh.